0: All right, welcome to another episode of the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Today, the knuckleheads are all back with me, and we're going to break down um, a new groundbreaking uh, pilot study uh, presented at the Academy of uh, Orthopedics, Sports Medicine, uh, never get the name right, I'll just say it, AOSSM, at at the academy meeting last weekend um, with with how BFR is affecting bone and, and talk about some of the pathways potentially that we think uh, might be important, and how this can can maybe set up some some pretty cool research on down the line, as well as what we're doing clinically. Um, we're gonna answer some questions that have been submitted. If you want to um, ask us a question, go to info at Owen Recovery Science Podcast and send us a question. If we read it on the air, we'll send you a a sweet ORS Earn Your Deflate T-shirt, one of the good type of T-shirts, not one of these crappy cotton ones that people always give away. And, um, also if you, if, if you like us, please subscribe. And if you want more information, check out our blogs, check out our other podcast at OwensRecoveryScience.com. So without further ado, here we go.
1: This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist, Johnny Owens.
0: All right. Ben, Kyle, Zach what's up fellas good morning everyone's in their home base right now right yes Yes. yep yep kyle you're about to um cruise a little bit further from your home base but but man this dude's got it made like being west coast he gets to go like do trainings like i'm being frisco i'll be in san diego i'll be in la And, and then when he travels he's like yeah, I'll do the course in New Orleans or, you know, I'll do the course in the Bahamas. So I don't know how you freaking want it, man. I mean, right, did I you go to the Bahamas I'm for me? I'm and not Rock, Arkansas <laughs> a few days.
2: I just got back from Abilene, Texas, man. Yeah, but you it like great. it there. I love it there. I love it there.
0: Yep, yeah, I do for sure. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and I'm from West Texas, so. The the number one thing I did is get the hell out of that area um, when I turned 18. No offense, dad, and and no offense to West Texas. (laughs) Love you, but uh, can't can't handle the dirt and tumbleweeds. So, anyways, (laughs) just kind of do an update of, of, you know, the last week or two and and next week or so, what everyone's up to. Kyle, Kyle, you go first, man.
2: Uh, Let's see. Uh, March had a a course the very first weekend in March out in Phoenix for a group called Foothills Rehab. They've got something like 38 38 clinics uh, under one large umbrella. Just took on a group over in uh, Tucson as well called Proactive. Mm-hmm. Had man, we had a crew of about 35 at that. It was a lot of fun. They had a they had a therapy dog there, a little puppy, pit bull puppy named Zeus, which was cool. Um, so he was hanging out the whole day. Did you get a made me off? happy at least no man i couldn't do that yeah uh, these animal studies you know you know how us californians are we kind of get a little cringy when you start talking animals and you know that's true whatever you'll do it um, to, you'll
0: do it to your patients and old, yeah, older yeah. people but, uh, i don't care let's go for it but
2: you know my i start thinking about my dog when you start talking about uh putting fractures on beagles and stuff so
0: we had a, um, a horse's dog that was injured um like one of the hero dogs actually really the dog had a reputation um yeah and we were able to get a pediatric cuff. It was at, um, I think it was out at Pope um, that they were able to get on them, but didn't didn't get to see it through because the dog had to go in for multiple more procedures and, and they just kind of had uh. to abandon it. But a pediatric cuff apparently will fit um, a dog's limb, you know, probably not like a, a freaking Chihuahua or something, but a good dog, yeah. um, it will, so. All right man my bad keep going
2: cool man yeah Yeah. so then a weekend after that was in back in phoenix for milwaukee brewers i I learned a little life hack um about picking hotels that week because um you need to really find out where the nearest starbucks is because if there's not one within like three miles um, you might not be in the best part of town. I'm just saying.
0: A California uh, life act. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you. I,
2: I I figured this out. When those guys found out where I was staying, they were like, "You're staying
3: where? And you walked where?" Um. So, well, Kyle, let, let me follow uh, that up with this: Is, is there anywhere? Here we California? go. Are we talking about China now? No. Is oh, there I'm anywhere in China? California that doesn't bring have a Starbucks within three miles? Uh,
2: I don't know that. Not not where I live. Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying, like yeah. I, that was the thing that, in hindsight, I thought, oh, I could have looked at that. So I learned, reference.
0: I learned in Tampa when I was out there with the Yankees. They drove me and dropped me off at my hotel. And um, if you if you pick a hotel and don't look where it's right next door to two strip bars, that's also not okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: now, there you go. Yeah, that's fast. a good good another good little now life hack. Um,
0: and, and the hotel seems to be used by a lot of people who like to frequent those places. So. <laughs> I imagine, I imagine so. Which is rates. you chose it. You, it was a total accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, yeah, man, I, I had the brewers and then had a week off. I uh, was in Abilene last weekend, did a course at my alma mater, Hardin Simmons University. uh had some good Texas barbecue. They actually have a good barbecue spot in Abilene now called The Shed, which is excellent. And then uh, leave tonight for Oakland to do the Oakland Raiders and then. Quick trip, man, up there tonight, then back tomorrow night and then clinic 10 hours on Friday. So looking forward to sleeping oh, this weekend. Man.
0: Nice. Man. Good. Yeah, now the Raiders, we're almost um, completely done with working with the entire NFL. Um, yeah. Which is sweet. I think we're like maybe one team shy. So I, I won't call that team out. But uh, good stuff, man. <laughs> so, Harden Simmons, uh, the mighty tumbleweeds, right? That's. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah Yeah, exactly one of the top football teams in 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 division 9a yeah (laughs) zach how about you man what's been up
1: oh man um so a couple weeks ago i was up in boston uh, at northeastern and did an open course up there i had folks from uh, lake placid olympic training center and then um from Brigham and William, Women's um, Hospital, Mass General, as well, uh, it was pretty cool to talk to some of them about the bear trial with the ACL. Repair. Yeah, just um, presented right just presented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one of the guys that was there um, actually uh, treated a couple of, of the patients there. So, it from his standpoint and from what he saw, it looked like some of the outcomes were really good. Um, yeah. So,
0: you want to expand so, on uh, what the bear trial is? For people that might not know. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. So it's, it's the bridge enhanced ACL reconstruct or repair. And so instead of reconstructing it, literally what they do is they go in and put a sponge graft in with growth factors to literally kind of um, bring the two ends of the ACL back together mm-hmm. instead of reconstructing it with um, you know, quad tendon, patellar tendon or an allograft. Um, so, you know, from basically the trial that's going on up there, um, I, I think they're, Around four years in, they've already kind of done from what I was on what I was told they've already kind of done the uh, the pilot data on it, and then now they're wrapping it up into a randomized controlled trial with hand
3: uh,
1: allographs yep. or autographs I mean um, so yeah the 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 guy that I talked to it sounded like um, things were really promising and, and coming along pretty well yeah,
0: yeah, their <laughs> session was actually right before the BFR session at the academy meeting last weekend. So that that would have been a good
1: to be on. Yeah. So so there was that was that course, and then um, just last weekend, I went up to Pittsburgh to uh, the Penguins training facility to to, um, do a private course with UPMC, and um, really cool with them. Uh, So we had people from pretty much all over central and western Pennsylvania um, in attendance there. uh, Bringing, I think one of the great things with that was their bringing BFR to more rural populations in Pennsylvania. So I'm um, kind of about an hour from where I grew up now has has multiple um, facilities with BFR. So it's pretty cool you know, to see that and branching out into kind of, you could say an underserved population.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's neat to see it go that way.
1: Yeah, what's and that, then, um, what's that?
3: I was gonna say that Lemieux complex is pretty awesome. We got to go- Yeah,
1: man. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, yeah. You know, they the uh, so the way they is one side um, is the penguin side, and then the other side is the um, UPMC side. But you know, it overlooks the rink, so I mean, you know, when you're doing therapy, you can literally see the penguins practice um, and whatnot. So, and then uh, this weekend coming up, I'm headed to Fort Campbell um, to to work with uh, some military, military folks up there. So should be pretty good.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's that's awesome, awesome groups, man, from Mass General folks, Lake Placid, UPMC. It's, it's funny, like, you know, these trials now, when you get a big one, everyone wants you to come up with a sexy name, a sexy acronym. You know, the BEAR trial, the MOON trial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at UPMC, we have a massive, I think it's 27 sites are doing a, a multi-leg trial. It's, it's not a BFR trial uh, specific trial, but it's a multi-leg aggressive versus non-aggressive. Uh, we have, you know, we have a part of it here with the DOD and we were trying to come up with a name for it. that was sexy. Um, J.R. Gang was the guy who who put this one out cause it's MLKI is, is multi-leg knee injury is what you normally say. So he wanted to call it the Milky Way. Um, <laughs> but it got voted down. No one, no one wanted to go with the Milky Way. <laughs> so we don't have a good acronym, man. We're still working on one, you know, cause when you present, it better sound something cool like that. Ben, what about you, man? Yeah, yeah.
3: past few weeks, I've been in uh, Ohio, and Troy, Ohio, did a, a course over there, um, and then here fairly local in San Marcos with Texas Physical Therapy Specialists, and then just this last weekend made my uh, kind of biannual trip to uh, the Twin Cities, was up in, uh, in Minnesota, so still cold up there. I mean, that's a huge <laughs> surprise to everybody, I'm sure, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was uh, still still a bunch of piled up snow on the ground. I mean, we we got it was pretty when I was there. I got up into the you know kind of low 50s during the day, but it it still had you know all these big snow piles on the side of the road, which was interesting for for a Texan leaving 75 degree weather and and going up there to snow piles. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I actually have my my first weekend without a course this coming weekend. It's strange. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself.
0: Yeah, I think all you guys are home. I'm the only one working this weekend. What, what the hell? I'm working. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. My bad. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah you're yeah. at you're at uh, Fort Campbell Monday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice. Fort cool. Campbell. Army I'm Fort Campbell. Ben, where? Yeah. What's that, Kyle?
2: It's Fort, it's Fort Campbell. Army. What? What's Fort Campbell?
1: Yeah, Kyle, any fort is typically Army
2: based. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Military
1: dudes in your language. I I have no idea. uh, What do we got? Ports or uh, uh, Army? uh, Camp. Uh, Camp is uh, is a Marine Corps base. Yeah.
3: Okay. That wasn't even an acronym.
1: Yeah. No. Y'all have a whole different language that I have no clue about.
2: All right. So then what's Navy? They're just out on the water.
1: I mean, they don't typically have like a something that comes in front. I mean, like Little Creek, you know, damn neck. Yeah.
0: And then, and then Air Force. What do they do? Yeah. There there. a lot of jokes might come from that, but so we'll, we'll be careful here. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Fort Campbell's. Um, so we've already been there. I, I have some, a lot of good friends up there. Fifth, fifth special forces group there as well as Kyle. Who we've worked with in the past and, and then a huge massive clinic space again not my favorite city in the world there but but it's close to nashville which is cool so there's good barbecue at least you get some good barbecue and, and ben i gotta throw this shout out ben's been invited to be the keynote speaker at his graduating class from his school man so uh what is that next week ben uh that's that's in may and may. Uh, it's, all right, all right. it's just it's just at the graduation dinner it's not at the uh, the full-on ceremony. Uh-oh, okay you're getting no, not a, now uh, he's walking into. i'm like boom guess who's keynotes <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, i'm gonna be on too no, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> oh. all right as as all just... right well and, and i'm i'm off to uh my annual well i think you did it last year ben but every year we do with the arkansas physical therapy association we do a a course out there and majority of the proceeds go back to the Arkansas PT Association so I'm there this weekend out at the Arkansas Medical School um, which is good it, this thing's crazy I mean if you look at our like most trained state of, of people that are certified providers Arkansas just like blows it out of the water so <laughs> if you want some BFR and you're in the Arkansas area and you're a patient you should be covered because I, I think the state's um, doing great there um, yeah but good people we've also we're discussing a uh, a multicenter total, total joint trial um, between Arkansas and University of Colorado. So I get to meet with them on that, um, which will be really cool. Um, and then I'm off after that to uh, the American Physical Therapy Association's Orthopedic Academy Conference out in Denver, which is going to be sweet. And then working with the guys at Next Level uh, at a course on Sunday. And I guess we got to put it out, man. That course is almost sold out. I think um, capacity was 40. We, we just got a few slots left. On that weekend to Houston is it sold out Ben I mean it's it's pretty much that one's that one's sold out and then we've we've got Zach doing a giant private course that weekend also yeah so yeah if you're trying to get in on one of those I would do it well I guess the only one left now is Denver and there's only a few slots left but if you want to do it it's a great facility great people it should be a good time all right so let's let's get into the nitty-gritty now so the biggest orthopedic conference um, maybe in the world, but definitely in the United States, is is the, what they call the Academy meeting, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Um, they just had it out in Vegas last week. And um, then off of that meeting, you, you have a lot of breakouts. Um, so the American Academy of Orthopedic um, Sports Medicine Society, the Trauma Society, um, they they have these kind of little break-offs, what they call specialty days, um, which are probably even more attended. And and so a um, couple of, of BFR presents there, which is nice, you know, because typically, you know, no offense, but they they kind of don't really give a rat's ass a lot about all the rehab talks. And, and there's rarely rehab talks. It's more orthopedic driven. But um, uh, Dr. Robin West's group in the Nova had a, a, a cool booth type poster Session set up on on how they're doing BFR um, with a full demo, like video going and everything post surgically, um, and and then again, I think we talked about them a few weeks ago. Freaking Bradley Lambert, man, crushing it right now. So so um, we've been kind of you know just in collaboration with them. Um, and we've known those guys for a long time. Bradley, back at the Center for the Intrepid, um, he and Dr. Mike Marino from uh, from A and M came and visited me, and, and we discussed kind of some study ideas a long time ago. And now they're finally coming to happen. But but he he had a uh, the initial pilot data um, from one of his randomized controlled trials that he was able to present at Specialty Day, and and it was such a big deal. Um, the AOSSM actually sent out a press release, um, to announce the day of about his talk and, and the title, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like blood flow restriction may, um, improve bone healing after anterior cruciate ligament, um, surgery. So, so that was cool and good for Bradley to, to get that out there. I think he had 1100 surgeons at his talk, um, from, from what one of the docs said that, that told me about it. And so, so here's the gist of it. We got it. We got a couple things out of out of this study and it's not done. They're, they're wrapping up um, the last few subjects um, and then the, it will be submitted for publication. It will get picked up for sure. But but what they did was, you know, basically BFR two times a week starting day 10 after ACL surgery. And, and they did that up to, to the 12th week. And they had a work match control group that did the same exercises without BFR. And and we'll go into all the the guts of the study, but but it was kind of a staggered approach. At at that day 10, that first, what, like weeks one through three, I think, um, the BFR group just did straight leg raises with BFR. Um, Control group did the same thing without, plus all their other protocol exercises, again, doing the same things. Um, they use 80% limb occlusion pressure, and 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 Bradley, you know, I, I and, and this is the way uh, you know we want everyone to kind of think about it, and the way we have to set up some of our studies, our total joint studies, is the way we're we're setting them up to make sure we follow it. You don't always have to start at 80, and, and we'll talk about why getting that higher pressure might be important. Um, but typically, you know, they start at 70, and then we'll progress up to 80. And, and as Bradley, you know, we spoke. Uh, several weeks ago about it. Almost every patient tolerates an 80% pressure after a week or two. Um, but but you you might have to build them up to it. And then after that first um, bout of basic kind of mat exercises, then they went to like a bilateral leg press with or without tourniquet on, um, some eccentric leg press, um, hamstring work, and then progressed to more single leg stuff by, by rounding up into the 12th week. And so they were using DEXA to uh, to measure for changes in in lean muscle mass, but they they also were able to pick up on that changes that happen in the bone, and and so what was very very fascinating, and and this hasn't really been published, and I and I talked to to some docs, um, out at extremity war injuries about it when when we first were looking at the initial results, is the fact that the involved limb the bone went pretty osteopenic, um, that that it it started to to lose bone density. Um, And a lot of bone density down around the distal femur, um, the tibia, at the joint itself. And and what Bradley and them found was even at the 12th week, it was getting worse. So at the six-week time point and the 12-week time point, they measured and looked at bone density on these DEXAs. And if you're looking just at the control group, at the six-week, the bone was kind of going south. And at the 12th week, the bone really was still going south. It was still getting worse. And so what we don't know is, like, when does that switch? You know when when does that change, and and what they found basically in the BFR group is not only they did they preserve the the lean muscle mass and and the BFR group was doing significantly better in keeping muscle on the thigh, but they did significantly better at the at the six week point and the twelve week point um, in in attenuating that bone loss um, at the twelve week time point. You know basically especially around the knee joint, the bone was basically almost back to baseline. Um, I do have this is from earlier pilot data so I don't know exactly I wasn't there to see exactly what was presented but if we're just looking at the distal femur um, at the six-week point the BFR group hadn't significantly lost any bone density Um, at the six-week point the control group hadn't but at the 12-week point they did significantly have a loss of bone density so at six weeks it was it looked like it was trending down and at 12 weeks the bone had significantly gone down if they didn't have the tourniquet on. Basically, at the 12-week time point, the distal femur in the BFR group looked like what the femur had looked like in the control group. And then the tibia, um, it was basically pretty much preserved um, almost at baseline in the BFR group at both 6- and 12-week time points. At 6 weeks, it was down, again, worse than the BFR group at the 12-week time point, but not significant in the control group. And then at week 12, um, significantly different between groups and significantly down in the control group. So this is this is interesting. That is something that we don't talk about is the loss of bone that might happen post surgically um, just from limited use, maybe from something that goes on from the injury and surgery itself. So you guys have any initial thoughts from from that? And, And the interesting thing is the whole thing was about preserving lean muscle mass. And now no one's even talking, you know, that's almost like a no, duh. We knew the BFR group would have more muscle and, and you know, they didn't check strength and this, they checked functional measures at 12 weeks. The BFR group was significantly better on their functional measures they did. Um, but the bone is now what's got all of the hot kind of press and everyone talking. So you, you guys, what what are your alls thoughts after that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, you look at it and it just kind of makes sense, right? Um, so we go into the surgery Typically, even if your are weight-bearing is tolerated, you're in a tolerated urine and altered weight-bearing status, you're not gonna evenly distribute weight through that limb. And then the other thing is too, when it comes to loading, I mean, everything we know about bone is it's, it's kind of load dependent, right? So we have to put load through the bone and um, post-operatively we can't put load through the bone. So um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, seeing it now, it's kind of like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Like we absolutely would anticipate to see this. And it, <clears throat> I think the thing of it is too, it's just like you said, at 12 weeks, the control group is still going down. Yep. So there's no reversal at 12 weeks. And so now the thing of it is, is um, how how much longer does this go down before we start to see the actual reversal and start to build bone mass back up? Right. I
2: thought I thought one of the things that, that was kind of interesting, and again, I think, you know, we're talking about a really small sample, mm-hmm. so you don't know if this evens out over time, but when you're looking at the, the control group out at 12 weeks in the uninjured limb um, that bone density was better uh, than the bfr group so you kind of wonder like in that in that um, in that bfr group if they're just not moving around quite as much as they typically would so we're seeing bone mineral density and and, and bone mass kind of stay the same but in that in that in that control group where they're uninjured if they really seem to be Moving around a bit more, but they're really loading that uninvolved limb more and more and so you're seeing kind of that that reaction of load just there Um, but was really kind of curious and I was also sort of wondering, Do you know, johnny did they When did they start looking at bone mineral density? Did they do any pre stuff because I know the the information we have here is just at six weeks post So I was kind of curious. Well, when did this bone loss start? Do we see it track similarly as to muscle? I mean, we got to imagine that bone and tendon are responding similarly to the removal of load or removal of signal like like muscle does. Um, so I was just kind of wondering, you know, when when did that start?
0: Um, well, and, so and then also that baseline, in the, in the baseline six week and 12 week is, is OK, is when the measures were done. Yeah. So okay. that's that's the time points we have. So we know yeah. at baseline um, at six and 12 weeks, the control group um lost it so that's that's what we can see right
3: now yeah Yeah, i mean kyle i'm sure we can i mean we can assume that the baseline is that zero on the y-axis right that's going to be where everything moves from so
2: yeah i was just wondering you know like do are we seeing any change in that particularly from start to six weeks you know was there any change there um in bone because we just didn't have it so
3: so, well, yeah. It, well, it it is showing it, right? That's the six week mark. Is what is the change from baseline?
1: I, I on, think. On what I was asking is when was the initial measurement, the baseline measurement taken? It was taken at six like, weeks, right? It, baseline was yeah. six. No, yeah, baseline, so we don't have. Baseline, baseline was pre-op. So, yeah, pre-op. yeah. Base, baseline was pre-op, and then the, the first follow-up, their first data collection was at six weeks. Second data collection was at uh, twelve.
0: Right. Well, okay. So, and, and let's, let's get back to uh, to this point again of, of, of what we're kind of looking at here with bone. So that's the fascinating question. So for one, we got to think about now that, you know, postoperatively in, in a younger healthy population, the bone is making negative changes, which, which, you know, again, no one's really talked about Dr. West and I, um, we're discussing this too. And she, and she even said, you know, sometimes if she has to go in, um, for, for any second procedure, you know, she's noticed that the bone just feels softer. Um, you know, after, after they've had a procedure and had several weeks or, or longer, um, it's like, yeah, we, we, we as surgeons know that the bone doesn't seem to have the same density from what we remember going in on this person before. Um, but then it, you know, the, the big question is what about the, uh, you know the more compromised individual. So the the total joint, especially the female total joint, um, who's who's gone through menopause, and we think the bone is is probably more osteoporotic. Even maybe moving into this, this is this is really fascinating. Is is this something that can increase bone density in those groups and maybe help um, with incorporation of the prosthesis? Maybe slow revision rates. So you know the big question that spun out of this was, okay, is this something also? That can maybe push graft incorporation quicker with an ACL. If we're getting more bone density, especially around the joint, it wasn't right under the cuff. You know, the the whole limb bone density improved, but also looking specifically at the joint, does that change maybe graft incorporation? Um, what do you guys think?
3: Yeah, I mean, it it, it seems like it would, right? I mean, and that's you know thinking about the aging population you're talking about and, and these changes that we're seeing in the bone, it seems to be obviously tied to decreased stress, like we talk about with anabolic resistance and muscle. So, you know, this is the thing that really changed for me with, you know, the more we get into this information, kind of looking at all the ways we can chemically mediate changes in bone, as opposed to thinking of it as only being mechanically mediated. So, you know, it just really seems like some of the things that we can make happen with this just make total sense, just, getting the, the big trials to back it up.
0: Yeah. So that is the next setup from a from a clinical question is is can we look at Changes in in how quickly we get graft incorporation um, and maybe you know a, a kind of pseudo ligamentization um, of of whatever graft. These were bone tendon bones um, that they used in all these subjects. So you do have a bone plug. Um, you are waiting for this incorporation. So you know that that was kind of the the spin off questions from from a lot of the docs. There is okay, that's awesome. You know and and, and again, the the lost point <laughs> is that the muscle was significantly better in the BFR group. Um, At these time points as well. And so that that's this kind of double win and and then what what's really? Interesting and and we've been kind of harping on this and and the ISR guys really were pushing this hard on us is bone and muscle There's a crosstalk and they have to they have to work together And so if bone isn't responding well if bone is unhappy the muscle is going to be unhappy because everything comes from bone. Um, not everything, but but bone is really important in feeding the muscle what it needs. So it feeds, um, we have these progenitor cells or stem cells that live within the bone. We have HIF1A that gets activated, <laughs> which VEGF kicks back in and you get this um, capillarization or angiogenesis, which feeds the muscle and feeds the bone. And, and then if you think about it from an orthopedic structure standpoint, you tear a muscle, and the muscle will just go into fibrosis. That's the way a muscle will, likes to respond. It doesn't regenerate unless now, you know, we're looking at ways to promote regeneration by slowing fibrosis. You tear a ligament and the ligament will not do a direct heal. Um, you know, we're looking at the the bear trials using patches, or you have to actually go in and, and just create a new ligament. You completely tear a tendon. The tendon does not heal right back, but you can have a pretty significant break in a bone and, and the the thing the bone does is like, I'm going to heal this mofo, right? So it will go in and it will heal itself. And not only does it heal itself, it comes back and heals itself bigger and stronger. You get a callus formation that's bigger than it was before. And so bone is very good at taking care of itself and healing because it has a lot of other things that it needs to do. Um, if the bone is osteoporotic or is having to worry about itself, that, does that compromise what it's given up? to the rest of the muscle itself, um, to, to get muscle back into a good, a good place. You know, Brad wanted to, he said, you know, that's the, the thing that he was really bummed about is he didn't get to speak on the muscle bone crossover or the crosstalk, um, that's so important and, and where this might really be kind of more groundbreaking because, you know, it's only, you only get 10 minutes at these talks. Um, so, so I, I think that's maybe going to be more fascinating is, is we can't just look at muscle or bone. They go together and maybe a happy bone makes a happy muscle.
3: Yeah, I mean, I uh, agree with that. And I, I think the conversations we've had kind of off this this podcast is it, it looks like a lot of these, you know, cellular responses that we need for remodeling of tissues in general, talking about, you know, all the tissues you mentioned, you know, seem to really stem from from the bone, you know, everything from those, you know, Matapoetics that differentiate the different cells to the macrophages to, you know, that HIF, HIF1A and angiogenic response. So it looks like the, the bone is obviously
0: a key player for, for everything that's happening around it. Right. And, and we have bone data, but it's, it's not a great clinical model. So if you say, well, is there any BFR, you know, mechanistic data that supports its effect on bone? There's animal models out there that have shown us that, but, you know, they're on a a beagle, they're doing BFR or putting tourniquets on these dogs multiple times a day. Um, And, and, you know, these are older studies in JBGS and JOR, which show that we do get um, union in in the tourniquet group and and the non-tourniquet group. These are pretty big osteotomies they put on the beagles. They had non-union. Um, and then mechanistically, we can say, okay, well, there's all these factors. We talk about this in the course, you know, interstitial fluid flow, the pressure between bone and muscle, there's this crosstalk. So the tourniquet might restore that where it's almost like a, a weight bearing. If you take a rat and hold it up by its tail, interstitial fluid flow is going to drop down. And that's why you demineralize. That's, that's, you know, the whole NASA problem with non-weight bearing. And then um, growth hormone, we, we can get a growth hormone response. We're still trying to figure out everything growth hormone might do clinically that's, that's helpful. But there's receptors for GH on bone, um, which can also help when positive bone changes. Um, Bone-specific alkaline phosphate goes up in BFR groups and heavy lifting groups, but not in the um, light lifting groups. And that might be directly related to myostatin going down, um, which we've seen in BFR trials, we can make myostatin go down. And then maybe, again, one of the more powerful ones is VEGF goes up, Um, It looks like when you go put a muscle into hypoxia and whenever you put a muscle into hypoxia, when VEGF goes up, that's also a significant bone healer. So mechanistically, it's there. The problem is then you're trying to translate from animal models. Now we can say, well, this is very clinically easy, right? Ten days out, which is when most of us are starting BFR. Um, Some people started earlier. Some people started later. But for these routine ACLs and things like that, 10 days out and up to the 12-week point, twice a week, very clinically doable. And you've preserved the lean muscle mass and you've got the bone almost to baseline. Then it's a nice transition off of that. So I think that's a nice setup is it's actually a clinical model where we're not like, well, damn, how do we translate this from a frickin' rat um, to it? And so that's what's beautiful right now is we have these clinical models coming.
3: Right. I mean, that's that's only slightly easier than what they did in the Hewitt study for for the Beagles with the osteotomy. I mean, they did the intermittent pneumatic compression five minute rounds and they did it 100 times a day for eight weeks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, hey, it looks like it works for bone. And, you know, everyone's <laughs> like, well, how the hell are you going to repeat that? And and that's a right. that's, a, you know, over 10 year old study. And that's probably why everyone just kind of looked at it and, and kind of ignored it. Um, but but you can't ignore that. OK, there's something there. Pathway wise.
3: Yeah, we just need people to walk around with a tourniquet on their leg and you know Tourniquet in a backpack and it just inflates off and on throughout the day and yeah Well, there, there you yeah. go.
0: Don't hold your I mean, uh, I'm not gonna say don't <laughs> hold your breath. you never know the way things are going man, <laughs> right? So you guys that's have
2: basically what thoughts? you did with your wrist right then?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's
3: that's the way I approached my wrist I, I hope the the doc isn't listening right now with my uh, yeah. My scaphoid fracture that I was supposed yeah. to do nothing with for
2: you, you just did that to just do your own little experiment. We know how this actually went.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, was kind of
2: like that Alfredson's tendon protocol, where you just try to rupture that freaking thing, and oh, what do you know? It got better. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, after the the last you know scaphoid fracture I had, where I was ten weeks in a spica and everything, you know, went to trash, and it, you know, that wrist didn't feel good for about a year and a half afterward. I figured, you know, what's it going to hurt to provide a little extra stimulus? So uh, anecdotally, it it felt better, healed faster.
2: You know, you said Spica and it just triggered me a little bit Um, because when I took the board exam after PT school, there were at least five questions about a Spica. And we at no point during my education covered Spica. And I just chose that um, by chance. Cause I thought, well, it's gotta be that process of elimination. And I mean, I passed, so I guess I did. Okay.
3: Well, I, I don't I know, know that, that we ever, now. yeah, I don't know if we ever talked about it in school, but I, I've, I've been injured enough in my <laughs> life. <that> I, see, <laughs> yeah. I seem to know That's what these the things trick. are. So,
0: <laughs> so any other parting thoughts on, on this study where you think we should see research moving with it? Um, anything from y'all's side?
1: Yeah, I,
0: to, go ahead, man. All right, I,
3: I was just gonna say, I think it's obviously it'd be be great if we could get some sort of animal model where they can actually look at, you know, the the incorporation of the graft or how that that you know graft heals with with the bone tunnel and things like that. If if we're actually getting significant change there, because you're never gonna go back and do that in a human, um, so actually seeing what the difference is for for healing um, in, in the joint would be fantastic.
0: Well. But I think you can any human it, it, through imaging, um, right? So that's doable. It's expensive, but, right. but the best thing about this is now we got pilot. And and so right. that's always a question when you're funding, you're writing these grants uh, proposals. It's always like, show us your pilot, show us your pilot. Well, well now we've got it. And and I'll say there's, there's, and it, it wasn't hundred percent directly related to this, but we're going to have more. So the DOD just funded a stress fracture trial. Um, last month, um, John Mason is is the PI on that, and um, and and we also Jenny Hugh, who's an orthopedic surgeon, um, who was also with us down here at Samc. She just got a um, an ankle fracture trial funded with BFR. So nice. we've got those two in the DoD. We we have the the repair trial, which is the the, the massive monster trial with now I think we're at eleven centers. Um, that is looking at changes um, after femur fracture with BFR. Um, we just had a wrist fracture trial um, from from our base as well presented at the American Hand Society. That one we didn't look specifically at bone healing. We didn't have enough numbers, um, but it, you know one of the things was looking at is does BFR make the pain worse in these individuals after bone fracture. Um, You you know, that's, you know, I had an NFL guy years ago, we did it, he was rolling into the Super Bowl and did it on his fracture right before it, and it really made his pain worse. Um, So probably started too soon on that one, or maybe, you know, the pressures might have been different, was it 50%, but this one we we showed at this hand society uh, meeting, the pain was significantly down in the BFR group um, in these wrist fracture, and these were elderly wrist fracture individuals. Um, and, and their functional scores were all significantly better in the BFR group. So a lot of bone will probably be borne out um, in BFR trials moving forward. So I think it's, it's going to be something that's very interesting. And, again, that's what's awesome. You know, if, if we as rehab professionals can kind of say, look, you know, these bone injuries, we, we can see them in the clinic, and, and we have something um, that might be a positive change. It might help with bone healing rather than spin your wheels. I mean, like these freaking stress fractures, we have tons of them in the DOD. And, you know, it's like, okay, go. To the, they go to the pool or they walk on the Alter-G, they're walking around dragging their crutches, doing little mat exercises. When well, outside like I get in here at least two times a week and we need to see if we can start pushing bone density. And, and, and oh, by the way, while you're doing it, we're also going to be maintaining your muscle um, and hopefully adding some strength to this as well. Um, so I, that's I think- what I
2: think so fun about all this BFR stuff is it, it really kind of gets you forecasting a little bit at some point, like down the road, what does rehab look like? Do we really kind of program this differently or are people in at different time points? Um, and hopefully we're thinking at a different level. Like We're thinking at that bone level, at that myogenic stem level, what are we really trying to manipulate and, and how are we decision-making? Exactly. I think that's, what's so fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. You know, it gets thrown in this like bucket. Oh, just go do your BFR. And it's like, well, okay, what yeah, are we? Yeah, No way. And yeah. maybe, you know, it's kind of funny because it's like, well, what did they do? It's like, well, they did, you know, the same protocol that we do you know, 80% limb occlusion. They did 30, 15, 15, 15, 30 second rest. Um, and so, same low load. But as clinicians, we're going at it from this different perspective. Like, okay, this person's coming in. And I'm doing this and I'm really doing it for this bone response or I'm doing this because I'm trying to slow atrophy or I'm doing this because I'm trying to spike progenitor cells because they're about to get a PRP injection and they need this, um, this, this progenitor cell spike because I, I want to supercharge that injection. So um, it's very standardizable, very easy to reproduce as a profession um, everywhere if we follow those rules, but we're looking at these different pathways that we're attacking. You know, I, I had a doc yeah. mention at one time, he's like, you know, this what I, what he thought was cool about BFR was he's like, it seems like everyone does something different whenever they go to rehab. And I never know exactly what they're doing. Um, but, you know, when I, when I know I'm sending these guys to so the people you work with, I know they're getting this percentage, they're doing it this way, and it's very standardizable. And, and I'm hoping to get the same results that, that you guys have been seeing with it. And he said it reminds him of of an injection, you know. An injection could have the freaking most hardcore cancer drug. Could, or an injection could be a steroid or an injection could be a placebo. It all looks the same, but you're doing it for these specific reasons, and it's very standardizable and reproducible. And and I think that's something that we might be able to kind of hang our hats on with this. So I think it's cool. I'm fascinated. You know, I've been preaching this bone and muscle crosstalk. Dr. Ben Corona um, and and Josh Winky and all these guys at the ISR, um, they've been, they've been talking it, it, it. It's almost like where we were with the muscle and tendon long time ago. It was like, it's muscle and then it's tendon. And then we found out there's this muscular tendon this junction and it's kind of wacky world. And, and they, there's this, you know, they kind of merge into one, um, almost like this kind of webbing and, and there's a lot of wackiness that happens there. Um, now it's, you know, there's specific people who are looking right at what's the bone muscle crosstalk, that they, they kind of merge into working with each other. So we have to respect both of those have to come along to make change. Okay. Then let's talk about Grant's paper. Um, so Grant Mouser, he was at Ole Miss, now he's at Troy. Um, great guy. Um, we're, we're on um, the, uh, from the, from the lab to the clinic paper. He was with Jeremy Lenecke's group, um, done a lot of good BFR stuff. So what, what he's looked at recently in a paper um, was, does low pressure, 40%, limb occlusion pressure, arterial occlusion pressure, personalized tinnitus, pressure, whatever you want to call it, um, does it create the same response at the vascular level for, for a positive effect as a higher pressure, 80%, or lifting heavy, 70% of 1RM? So have you guys read that one? Anybody want to kind of break it down of of what Grant found?
3: Go ahead, guys.
2: (laughs) Nobody at once. Not everybody at once. I
0: just talk too much I make everyone nervous. (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. Well, basically, same easy protocol to repeat. Um, But this isn't a clinical trial. But they did two times a week for eight weeks. And so three groups, low pressure, in the arm, low pressure in the leg, high pressure in the arm, high pressure in the leg, or a heavy lifting group. And, and basically what they wanted to look at was what are the changes at the, at the vascular level. And so vascular conductance, um, the exercises, they did these at, at 50% of a 1RM. And, and so basically what Grant found is at the low pressure, they didn't see changes in forearm and calf vascular conductance. At the high pressure, they did see positive adaptations in, in forearm and calf vascular conductance. So, and so, basically right here off of their discussion, the unique finding of our study was that both forearm and calf vascular conductance increased in the very low load, high pressure condition, as well as the high load condition. And these were not statistically significant from each other. The low load condition um, at the low pressure, we didn't see these changes. So we know that we can have positive adaptations with angiogenesis, with improved um, vascular conductance whenever we lift heavy. And, and so the, there's, there's a couple of ways to look at it. So bone, again, is more hypoxic if you go into muscle and make it hypoxic we get the, the kind of downstream effects of HIF-1A into VEGF, and VEGF um, is, is very powerful angiogenic response. But also the mechanical compression kicks in this ENOS cascade. And so if you can mechanically compress a vessel, then that also creates positive adaptations in the conductance of these large vessels as well. And so what Grant found was you can make this happen if you go have someone lift heavy, or you can make this happen if you have someone go lift under a high pressure and lift light, but these lower pressures, they didn't see these adaptive changes there. And so that that's very interesting because if we're talking bone, these pathways, you know, we have a paper that we talk about in, in our in our course. You know, it, I think the title's like Vegf, the key component for for um, bone and fracture healing or something like that, right? So, you know, when we were first looking at VEGF at the ISR, these guys are like, yeah, everyone's trying to find a VEGF vesicle, you know, either through pharma, through injections that you can drive this upregulation to maybe help with bone healing. Well, or we can put the limb into hypoxia and put mechanical compression on the vessel um, and potentially get these same adaptations. So these, these basically, Grant's paper came out right at the same time that Bradley's paper came out. And, and I think the key points are, are: yes, these are things from Grant's paper, from a lab that show that they should help in in with what we see happening at the bone. And high pressure, eighty percent made it happen, forty percent didn't. In the arm, and this is what's interesting makes us have to think: it was eighty percent in the arm showed the changes. Right, right, right. Ooh, man. Well, right. then, <laughs> and I always want to be there, like, dude, how are your people handling that? We, I mean, we started eighty percent of the arm. Um, and most of our patients didn't tolerate it, you know. I, I think, Kyle, you're answering some questions on the inner circle. Someone is saying, yeah, we've got some patients who can't yeah. tolerate the arm. You're like, are you at 80? Because most people, if you accidentally do it at 80, right. they just don't handle it. So clinically, that just might not be tolerable, especially, you know, if you have like an elderly you know, wrist fracture or cuff or something like that. Um, but in the limb, that's basically what we know and what we're, the limb, the lower extremity, that, that's what we're doing. Um, so that fits perfectly kind of into our protocol there and again nice nice again two times a week It falls right, right into it. Yeah Well it, this this really <laughs> makes me think about the uh, the Lisandro paper where they're looking at different loading schemes
3: and different right. pressures where the lower the load the higher the pressure Probably needs to be to get the response we're shooting for and with a 15 percent of one rep max That's obviously really low on the spectrum of loading. So yeah, you know, it makes you you wonder if there was a little higher load would the pressure you know come down and still get the same response and yeah yeah i, yeah, I remember starting yeah. it you know to do this on upper extremity when i was interning at CFI and that was still 80% on upper extremity back then <laughs> and yeah that was that was nowhere near as fun as 50% no joke. I mean, it's, uh, it, it was not a whole lot of uh, great stuff feeling in that uh, that upper extremity I mean, I was doing a bunch of bicep curls, so that was that was probably, you know, the you know, me being a meathead back then, and that was even, you know, just a dumb choice altogether, but.
0: Well, and that was the classic line from one of our OTs, because we were doing it, you know, on, we were just so swamped with all these lower extremity injuries. We were primarily doing it on the lower extremities, and, and I was having our folks do it at 80, um, and that was just based on, you know, what early data we could get and some of the mechanistic stuff from our, from our scientists at ISR and our OTs. You know, one of them came down and she's like, you know, is, our patients say they can't feel their arm and, and they can't really hold the weight. Uh, <laughs> is that what y'all are seeing with the leg? And I was like, no, um, I, I don't. I, I think this is a problem. Um, so we kept taking the numbers down and 50 and percent. Um, seemed to be doing just as well from from our pilot data as eighty percent jeremy 's group had a a paper that showed from a from a strength in hypertrophy I think it was strength in hypertrophy i can 't remember uh, but yeah, it was you know forty to just as well as ninety in the upper extremity. The lower extremity seems to be different
2: but I was trying to remember in, in to kind of keep that clinical context. I was trying to remember the load they used in that paper that was I was about to ask that so i 'm glad you brought that up was it twenty or thirty percent i don 't remember yeah.
3: I think I mean their typical is somewhere in that 20 to 30 percent. I mean it may be up to 40 percent but not higher than that and there was you know what 40 to 50 percent pressure was just as good as 80 to 90 percent yeah for musculoskeletal activity and strength and hypertrophy but
2: Johnny on this uh, on the vascular conductance side of things I just I'm not I lack a little bit of context on exactly what that is Do do we consider that an angiogenic response or is it just an improvement in the efficiency of the existing system? What do we, what does it tell us specifically?
0: Yeah. And, I, and I'm not an expert on, on vascular conductance, but it, but it's basically the improved fluid flow that, that you see, you know, the, the exact definition, definition of conductance. So yeah. um, you're measuring does that fluid flow improve um, through, throughout the, the vessel? Um, and, and so that's what they found there. The, so it could be a muscular, hy- a
2: muscle hypothesis type thing, like Larry Cahalan was talking about weeks ago, or, mm-hmm. or it
0: could just be something of the existing vasculature as well. So, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this really begs a question again, and and I think the trial might be happening um, if if this is true, and you improve conductance, you improve the, improve this angiogenic response along with it. Um, the the peripheral arterial diseases. Um, this yeah. this is a prime target, and then we're saying in those populations, all right, I think we might have to go higher pressure, right? You you might mm-hmm. build them up to it, um, and, and but the high pressure might be the the true adaptive changes that we need to see, um, and and again in the upper extremity it might be the same thing. If this is a condition where I'm trying to get more of a vascular um, conductance and angiogenic response, eh, well, we might have to look at more like an IPC-type, high-pressure-type model um, with this in the upper extremity if that's what the problem is. And, you know, we're talking about like a fracture or, um, you know, the, the question's been, you know, can you arterialize a, um, a, a AV fistula for someone who is going to go into dialysis? So can you change that? vein to an artery so that they can take the dialysis needle faster. It takes like six weeks. Well, can we increase pressure um, and and get a response faster so that it arterializes quicker so someone who really needs dialysis can get um, that AV fistula to arterialize faster or, uh, you know, uh, uh, something like, um, you know, a, a scape fracture that has a slower healing response and there's this angiogenic issue um, do we have to look at those from a, a pressure perspective, maybe? Um, interesting questions. Yeah, for sure. So I just a quote here. Let me let me read. So it's been hypothesized that venous occlusion could increase the circumferential strain on the on the microvasculature, leading to the release of angiogenic factors and a greater proliferation of arterioles and capi- capillaries. That vascular adaptation occurred only in the high pressure group at 80% um, arterial occlusion pressure and not the moderate 40% AOP or the no pressure group. So, I forgot to throw in, they had a a zero pressure group as well. Um, Groups tells us the following. At 15% of a 1RM is itself not mechanically able to cause an increase in angiogenic signaling sufficient to bring about adaptation. 15% of a 1RM combined with moderate 40% of AOP is not able to increase circumferential strain to a degree that would bring about adaptation. These conclusions hold for both the upper and lower body. Here's here's my favorite part from this paper. Past research investigating the ability of intermittent venous occlusion to treat peripheral vascular disease as seen with uncontrolled diabetes may need to be reexamined. And he freaking cites a BFR paper from 1937. <laughs> <We're just> like, <laughs> good on you, grant I, I want to talk to him. I ju- we just emailed back and forth um, recently, and I was like, Dude, where did you find the 1937 JAMA <laughs> intermittent hypoxia paper? Um, looking at this, and so again, everyone is like, "Well, this is a new thing," or you know, it started in the <laughs> 90s in Japan. It's like, well, no, yeah. we got papers in JAMA in 1937 um, that we're yeah. trying to, to study these effects. So, <laughs> any final takeaways before we move into our questions? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it's. I
3: think the interesting thing for, for all these is that it seems like hypoxia may be a, a, a very key factor. So obviously it it depends on our exercise availability and the patient population as to, you know, how we approach the pressure and intensity of exercise to try and make that hypoxia happen. But it, it really looks like, you know, hypoxia itself may be driving a lot of the response. So. Um, that, that's really interesting, especially from the bone perspective and looking at these things that proliferate out, you know, with the uh, the bone being, you know, low partial pressure oxygen like we've we've talked about in previous podcasts and, you know, this hypoxia outside the bone maybe creates this little osmotic gradient that kind of coaxes these good things out yeah. um, to have a significant effect for us. So whether that's a hypoxic stimulus or chemical or mechanical stimulus, it looks like they're all pretty effective and, and maybe all contributing.
0: Yep. Yep. Cool. All right, man. So let's move into some questions here. All right. First one's from Jordan. This is this is kind of piggybacking on what we just talked about. Why might a doctor request no BFR until a patient is weight bearing? His specific case is this is a post-op list, Frank. What precautions would there be for a non-weight bearing patient with you doing BFR? Yeah, I don't really know why you wouldn't want to do
3: it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the uh, thought process is for it being contraindicated. Uh, I mean, in my mind, that that's even more of a reason why we should be doing BFR, because we're not really doing much else that seems very effective.
0: Has anyone and, ever had a doctor tell them, don't start BFR while they're non-weight bearing in, in this group?
2: No, no, I've, I've never had that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw it out to see if, if that's ever been presented before, especially after what we just talked about. Um, yeah. I, see, I see, no reason at all. And, it, um, you know, it's even more of a reason to do it. You know, I probably need to follow up like, why do you know why he did that? Was he worried about DVT or, or VTE or something like that? But the non-weight bearing patient is the prime BFR candidate. So those are the ones I would talk to my docs, um, about like, hey, you're non-weight bearings. Can we please get them in here um, and, and start this? Because they're the ones that are going through the muscle dump and, and the bone dump now that we see. So. Right. I mean, it's just you,
3: you hope that the, the yeah. parameters for, for rehab and recommendations change over time with, with the idea that we don't need to do anything for bone. Just do nothing and let it heal.
0: You know, obviously, that, that doesn't seem to be the best
3: case scenario.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Times have changed. We actually, you know, and bone is going to get forced more. Um, it finally got funded um, a, an alter G trial of of taking fresh fractures and, and getting it on walking immediately in limited weight bearing. Nice. But the bone is, you know, the bone needs stress and yeah. the hardware, if, if they do have fixation, is, is so robust now. Um, that that most docs are are pretty comfortable. Now, we don't want everyone like running out now and saying, hey, I'm going to, Johnny said, I need to start weight-bearing all these fractures. Um, But this is a a metric-sponsored multicenter trial um, that is looking at this. You know, one of the docs, um, I think it was, maybe it was Dan Stinner that mentioned it. He's like, you know, if if I'm worried about these fractures that we're bringing into this trial, that weight-bearing is going to cause a problem, then I've got more of a problem with my surgery. Um, that I did, and my technique, than, than actually what's going on from a from a basic science standpoint with it. Um, so again, I think we're going to be pushing bone a lot more and seeing a lot more of this in the future. Is that a uh, fibs or? Yeah, so it's 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 all comers within the um, lower leg, not intraarticulars. Okay.
2: I was going to say on the side of just getting feedback from physicians on concern, when to start, and that sort of thing. I think we've talked about it before. The common thing we hear is, well, I want blood flow to my my surgery, um, which I think we've kind of detailed already today. We're actually really not concerned about that. We probably improve that blood flow to that surgery. On a, Another situation that I've had uh, was with a multi lig injury pre-op. The doc didn't want me doing BFR with him. He was concerned maybe there was something wrong with the popliteal artery. I, I I don't, it seems like something would pop up before you would go into surgery if that was really a problem. But um, I don't know, Johnny, you've dealt with more of those. Would you have concern in that specific population, like a multi-leg knee um, before they go in to do the reconstruction?
0: So before they go in,
2: well, yeah. so this guy actually had a lateral collateral reconstruction and then they went back in a second time. And did ACL, PCL,
0: and they had to fix the pop artery.
2: No, they did not. Um, yeah. But that was the doc said. I haven't been in there, so I don't know.
3: And so he didn't want us doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. imagine I that would need to be
0: figured out much quicker. That. <laughs> That's
2: yeah. kind of what I thought, oh, but I, you know, <laughs> what do you do
0: now? <laughs> I, I, I will say the <laughs> group at our at our base that gave us a lot of pushback right at the start was the vascular surgeons because we had a lot of multi-legs. We had a lot of vascular um, injuries during the war and, you know, ortho's on board, everyone's on board. And, and the vascular guys were like, uh-uh, not, not with these repairs. And so then we we pushed hard enough that they came around and said, okay, you can do them with, with autograph repairs, but not allograft repairs because we're not sure what this – you know, re- reperfusions are going to do to to the prosthetic grafts, and so we don't want to wear those down too quick. Um, again, which is which is probably a kind of silly thought if if you're saying that these patients um, eventually are going to be lifting some heavy weights and potentially having a, a reperfusion. You know, once the muscle contraction lets off and the flow goes back in, um, now. Um, you know, and, and Dr. Proper here the Air Force vascular doc, you know, he's all on board with it and, and thinks this is something great with it. Um the 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 vascular um, or not the vascular, but he's a plastic surgeon doctor who does a muscle flaps up at Walter Reed. We've got some patients that he's done functional flaps on with these graft um, incorporated repair or not repairs, but you know they they tie the pedicle into the existing vasculature. He thinks the mechanistically it makes perfect sense and probably promotes um, improvement with it. We'll see. We got a couple of Marines actually um, that that are that are um, going through it right now. So I think it's changed, but I think the vascular guys might look at you with a little um, cross-eyed at first if if they've never heard of it before. Um, but now, but now we're seeing there there might be improvement actually in the vessel, the large vessel, as well as an overall improvement into angiogenesis. And and that other question, you know, like, well, I don't want to decrease blood flow because this is a graft yeah. and it's already low on blood flow. That I mean, we we've, we've heard that quite a bit. I don't think we're hearing it as much anymore. It it's one of those things. It makes sense when you first just kind of look at it for a second, and then when you take a step back, you're like, okay, this makes no sense, you know. Yeah. We we do get this angiogenic response. It's a very slow acute bout of hypoxia. We're still allowing some arterial inflow, and and you know basically let's go back to this to this AOSSM presentation. Okay, well then you want the bone to just kind of go south. I think that does more to graft incorporation than keeping a good dense bone. Um, almost at its baseline that it was pre-surgical. So yeah, we'll see. Hopefully hopefully with these vascular trials. You know one of the Plastic surgeons uh, talked to, I think I mentioned to you guys, you know, he was talking about he ischemic preconditions his muscle flaps by yeah. holding the artery for a little bit and releasing it you know, with his fingers and holding it for a little bit and releasing it to create this hypoxic effect to ischemic precondition the flap before he puts it in. Uh, which was that's a really cool way to go about it. Most of us are never going to get that kind of um, BFR on someone but but I think these guys are now looking at it like okay These little short bouts of hypoxia seem to be maybe powerful for what I want to do Next question the, uh, the,
3: the animal research on IPC that's probably the most effective way to do IPC, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what those they animal do. studies yeah. that They cl- clamp an artery.
0: That's where the big effects are they clamp it. Yep and and <laughs> You know, there's a paper like, why aren't we seeing the changes in IPC that we see in the animals in the human models? You know, a lot of the human models are showing changes. Some of them aren't. And there's this kind of debate like the animals. It just seems to spare the heart. What's the deal? (laughs) I think we mentioned it. There's a freaking fatal flaw in these (laughs) IPCs. And the fatal flaw is they are using a standard pressure. And it's crazy. And, and, and you know, we, we discussed this. I don't know if you guys were with us. I forgot where it was. But it's like, it feels like the IPC studies are where BFR was like a decade ago. You know, like, okay, guys, now we got to bring this around and start standardizing it. My LOP is between 280 and 300 in my leg. And so if you use 220 on me, which is what everyone uses, I'm, I'm still not at hypoxia. The, the animal models are you got to completely occlude it. And that seems right. to preserve the heart, the kidney, the kidney, the liver, the brain. It does all this stuff. If you did it on me, I'm a partial occlusion. So I'm I'm probably not going to get the same effect.
3: Right. And so I don't know if y'all caught this, but in the introduction for that uh, Grant Mouser paper, it says the application of a single pressure is almost guaranteed to provide a different stimulus to each research
0: participant. Yeah. It's like.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, huh. we, That's so
0: interesting. Huh. And it's like, duh, you know, no, duh. from from this side because we've been preaching that forever and that's the thing you know there'll be a paper that comes out. it's like bfr does not work for you know whatever and it's like okay standard pressures you used a pump up thing so even if you got it to a pressure it probably was only there for the first rep and then it just went down so that pressure wasn't maintained um and, and so you can't you, you can't compare that. It's just it's it's just silly at this point. Now, and, and I was like, well, but some papers have shown that it does have. I, yeah, some some of them will. There's going to be some who that yeah that was that was full occlusion. For me, it wouldn't be. For a lot of subjects, it wouldn't be. For some people, it's too much. You know, they're. I at, think my
2: mind. patient deserves more than some. Yeah. I think my patient deserves results from me. Yeah. You know, I think I should control every variable that I can control. Yeah. Period. You yeah. know, that's our job. That's a, that's evidence based
0: practice, period. Yeah. Then it, yeah. That's where we're we need to step back <laughs> and look at all this stuff. I mean, even with the ACL stuff, we, I was having a talk with at, at one of the conferences with a bunch of docs about it. You know, they're the academy meetings here. You know, here's some of the, the things that they're looking at. Like does an anatomic graph replacement, you know, do the same as a non anatomic moving the graph like a millimeter? has less translation in in the tibia and the femur, and that little bit of less translation, you know, might reduce arthritic risk. And then it's like, okay, so you change this by like a couple millimeters, and then the patient goes back at a freaking 70% quad. At that point, does an anatomic versus non-anatomic even freaking matter? You know, I think they're going to have more translation because they don't have a freaking quad. So let's get that problem solved. Then worry about exactly where this graph placement is. And, and I think this is kind of just stepping back and seeing the forest for the trees a little bit better um, with these things. And, and IPC, and that's something I think we're seeing a change now, finally, with some of it hopefully coming out forward. Oh, you guys got me on my soapbox today. <laughs> All right, You're welcome. This, this questions. That's good. This question gone. Um, what's the youngest age patient that you perform BFR on? What guidelines would you suggest for minors? Um, uh, anyways, the rest I was just saying what's Zach, up. So. Zach,
2: you can take this one cause your wife was doing it when she was pregnant. Right. Is that right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I know. So <clears throat> I think the youngest that I've used it in the clinic was probably, uh, around a nine year old, somewhere like third, fourth grade. Um, really wasn't much of an issue with BFR. It was really limited by the, int- the attention span of the, the child. but uh, he didn't seem to be able to grasp the concept of 75 reps. He was, he was pretty much done after like 45, but either way, um, no, no adverse effects. I've actually used it that was an upper extremity issue and I've used it with a kid of a similar age um, soccer player um, with a um, like a hamstring issue. Uh, and had, had no issues. I'm currently rehabbing, um, two high school kids, uh, around 14 years of age right now. And we've been using BFR chronically with them, um, the post-op ACLs, the one since week two, uh, post-op. And then, um, the other one I started seeing at week six, I believe. Yeah. So no, no adverse effects, um, with it.
0: Yeah. What about um, the folks up there at, at Kennedy Krieger? Have you touched base with them? I, I think they gave you a range because so, they were using it on. Yeah,
1: all. so, so they're, the, the study that they're looking at specifically is with MS folks, um, both um, juvenile onset and um, in adults. Juvenile, I believe, is going down to 14. Um, and then the, the other thing is, too, like uh, with, with the kid who was the youngest, like nine years old, we used, um, the the red cuff would fit around his leg. So, um, and, and when I went up to Kennedy Krieger, we reached out to the folks at Delphi, and they basically said the size of the cuff um, really would, would determine, you know, what you could do. And if, if the red cuff was even too big, say for someone's leg, they would modify one of their surgical tourniquets um, to be able to accommodate the limb size.
0: Yeah. They have a pediatric line. The problem is the port, yeah. the port for those doesn't match the BFR ports. They made the surgical ones different than the BFR ones from a port, just so you couldn't take BFR systems into the ORs. Um, so yeah, you, you can get a pediatric one. But yeah, that, that's yeah, a good and, point.
1: And they, and they told me uh, prior to going up there that the, um, I think it's like a weak turnaround. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. So, you yeah. know, if it's someone, you have like a new eval, and you're like, man, hey, this, none of the cuffs will fit. Um, you know, they, they can turn it around pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, that,
0: the Delphi cuffs, they're rated for pediatrics. So if they do fit properly the, the way that you're taught to use them, um, they can be used on pediatrics. The interesting thing with MS, um, and I can't ever remember the name of, of this disease, um, but the stuff, Ben, that Jackie Burring's doing out there um, right. with, with the kid that had the, this new polio um Type syndrome that that popped up with a bunch of kids having these like polio type symptoms. Um, she had a kid come and they did it on him and and, and made like really like amazing changes. Um, she's got some some cool pictures and videos of it. Um, did you say you've touched base with her, Ben? On on
3: yeah. So she actually came by uh, for that course I did in Troy, Ohio, and hung out for part of the day and. Uh, I I didn't get a lot of one-on-one time to talk to her about it, but she said that they were doing some bilateral on upper extremity and bilateral on lower extremity. And, uh, you know, it just had some crazy results compared to the other cases. And it was only like one, it was one out of eight cases in the whole state of Ohio. So it's not like it's a, a really, you know, prevalent thing, but that's, you know, this was a huge standout as far as the results. So it got a lot of attention from, from the folks wanting to look at, you know, how are we really going to try to address this this new, you know, yeah. neuro disorder?
0: Yeah, I know. She said she had like parents, like a, a support group. They were all reaching out, trying to figure out how they could maybe get their their children in. So, uh um, right. from from a neuro side, and, and hopefully, so Kennedy Krieger's up there at, at Hopkins. Hopefully, um, we start to get some data of is there something that we see with with someone that has a, a young person with a neurodegenerative type disease. Um, so, right. The youngest that's been reported to me is seven. Um, I think out in L.A. That I I just don't know how you can get a freaking seven-year-old to tolerate it um, and do it. I mean, it, so we don't think there's any downside to it, other than like you said, Zach. I mean, I've I've done some goofy stuff with my daughters with it just because they always want to try it, and and they. They they start freaking out as soon as we get the you know start doing the the LOP Doppler reading on them so yeah uh, yeah
1: yeah it was it was predominantly just more of like an attention span issue you know we're doing the same exact thing for you know six to seven minutes and I want to you know it would during the rest period, it, you, you they would just run, wander off and try to go do something else and like, come <laughs> back man we got to finish this so, so when they walk
0: off do you just increase the pressure to take it up higher. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Walk them in the tracks. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like time out. We just leave the cuff inflated until I feel like deflating at that
3: point. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, trying to put some some parameters to this, you know, I, I think, you know, has anyone heard of any kind of safety issues or anything like that? I mean, I, I've never heard of anything, and it, it seems like it's all just tolerance. You know, would you be able to get the the kid to tolerate it? And obviously from, you know, anyone yeah. coming from an athletic background or if they got injured playing a sport, they've got some sort of idea of what, you know, that lactate stress feels like and might do okay with it with some education. But if they have no idea what physical activity really looks like, then they're probably not going to tolerate it very well. And uh sounds like that seven-year-old was a gymnast. So maybe, you know, he or she was really familiar with, with lactate.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was an elite athlete already. So already had that mindset there. Um, our, our first, so, you know, we were able to see dependents, um, so, so the kids of the service members and, and our first one was a 17 year old, um, young, young girl. And then I remember her case specifically cause she was, a, a she, she had torn her PCL, she's PCL deficient. Um, and she'd been out like about nine months. And and so she was just having this issue with the the anterior knee pain because you know that's one of the components when you lose a PCL, um, the the lever on the patella, you you have that that posterior sign and, and it puts a lot of stress through the through the patella and that's that's one of the compartments that wears down quickly and she was a high level basketball player I think she was going to like UCLA or something. But she was maybe going to lose her scholarship because she just everything was hurting her knee and no one could get her strength back where she was rehabbing. So um, we started her on BFR. And, and so we had Biodex data on her and just a, just that typical like can't produce peak torque flat because it, it hurt on the anterior knee. And then I think in, it was about a five week, you know, two to three times a week, completely cleaned it up. Um, so her peak torques, um, came back exactly peak torque, the to body weight was almost equal to the other side. And, and all we did was, was just go right at doing the quad exercise. I think we did like leg press on her, um, and maybe like one other quad exercise. So she come in and do two things, um, and, and got all of her strength back. And I, I, heard from her mom, um, that she was playing at her school, um, that next year without any issues with that PCL deficient knee. So, um, so then we we took it down. I think our youngest was 16. So there's no BFR pediatric or adolescent studies that are published yet that I know of. Not that I've seen. So there's nothing in the literature. The only question that really has come up, and this happened from our IRB when we did the big bone uh, repair trial and it went through and showing all these changes on bone was what do we think it does to the growth plate? And so... That's this question that, you know, probably um, would be the first one to get teased out is, is there any changes because of all these positive bone adaptations that we're doing something to the growth plates? I don't think there would be anything, um, but but that might be an animal model that's done first to just see what happens. I think I have mentioned it before. Um, baby goats would be what we'd use because their their physis fuse in like six weeks. Um, so that's all we have on that. But, yeah, if you got a young'un, make sure, number one thing, make sure mom's on board. Always, <laughs> always, always. So don't just go blast someone's kid. Make sure mom's on board. But we have a lot of folks that are doing it, especially in the high school, middle school um, kind of ages. Anything else, you guys? I think oh, you covered we're good. It? good. All right. Well, once again, I, I bogarted all the conversation. I'm good at that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Um, again, if you want more information, we're at www. Oh, wait, I don't have to do the www part, right? I can just say <laughs> just just use the interweb, the, the Google and put in Um If you haven't gone to one of our courses, we'd love to have you. We have a ton now. Just throw it out there, too. We just did one in uh, Barcelona Um, And so we we have the guys down there in FC Barcelona that are doing training or not FC Barcelona, but in Barcelona that are doing our trainings for us. Um, Just finished up a week with Susan um, from Canada going all through Taiwan. And so our our kind of hub now is in Taiwan uh, for trainings in Asia. So check our website if, if you want to to do any trainings. And again, if you like us, please subscribe and go on to the Owens Recovery Science podcast and, and give us a give us a rating if you don't mind. All right, all right, fellas, get to work. You. Now. Get your yeah. asses to work. All
1: right, later. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTS OTS. ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.